What's up, ladies and gents? As promised, here is my main man, Eric Kramer. God, it's great to see you, Eric. Um, for those who don't know or don't remember, it's, it's been a while, but that was one of our first big st- series here at Go Along, and to this day, it it still boggles my mind. I, I, I can't remember anyone who has been through what Eric Kramer has been through and we spoke for, I don't know, two, three hours, longer than that with the phone calls uh, that followed up. And I feel like it's still just scratched the surface uh, because Eric has a must-read, phenomenal book out, The Ultimate Comeback. There it is, if you're watching on video. Surviving a Suicide Attempt, Conquering Depression, and Living with a Purpose. Um, Eric, I have a million things I want to get into, but first of all, how in the hell you doing? It's great to see your face, yeah. your smile, your joy. You're in such a phenomenal place today. So, um, yeah, just fill everybody in that, that hasn't heard from you in, in a couple of years here at Go Long. How's life? Well, life couldn't be any better, actually. So um, everything is going well. Obviously, you mentioned the book, um, The Ultimate Comeback, has been doing very well. And uh, it's kind of just getting started in terms of uh, – talking about it and articles being done and uh, interviews and so forth. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun that way. And I've got a couple of um, nonprofits that I've been working on these last, I don't know, three or four years. Uh, and so one of them happens to be at the mental health program for kids and, and families um, and called mental health touchdown. Uh, it was going to, we were going to start it back in August, but then it's an after school program for uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, but um, kind of got delayed with this book uh, scenario. And then uh, there's another one, it's a passing camp. Uh, it's an off-season one um, that's going to be for all positions, uh, including centers. It Probably by year two, it'll be not just like the seven-on-seven people, but probably offense and defense alignment as well, because there's a lot you can do there in a non- non-contact way. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, uh, a little bit what's been going on and, uh, obviously we're in the holiday season. And so, you know, that's been, you know, a good time and, and, uh, good to reconnect with folks. I've got a a friend in a band that uh, I've known since I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old and, uh, his band's really good. They're playing this Saturday night. And, uh, I, I sent out an email to probably 70 people I know. (laughs) <laughs> so if we can get half of them out there, that'd be great. And uh, what's the band? It's called Black Canyon Band. And uh, oh, Gary okay. Usher, Gary Usher is my friend. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but his dad was my youth football coach, and his dad was a successful um, uh, uh, music writer and producer. So he he co-wrote some songs for the Beach Boys, apparently, and. I guess he produced the birds and some other groups and Simon and Garfunkel later. And I don't know, but this anyway, Gary's a very talented guy. So um, everybody's anyway. connected to Eric Kramer one way or another. I mean, <laughs> I, I listen to Adam Carolla all the time and, and you and Carolla right. are old pals, right? And you right, football right. growing up. Yep. Yep, exactly. So yeah, Gary was on that team as well. And uh, so you're right. There's a lot of, interwoven pieces to all this so yeah. it's, it's, it's been fun it's i don't even know where to start i, I i'll assume that a, a lot of people out there 
haven't heard your story or read your story yet, but um, I'll link it here on the site again to the fight for Eric Kramer's life. Obviously, you you attempted suicide, survived that attempt, which we'll get into that. And that might not even be the craziest element of your story. I mean, everything that happened after that, you're co- coerced into a sham marriage. Um, you kind of re- revert back to men- mentally being being a, a little kid, right? So you, you don't really know what's going on in your life, going through the yeah. motions after this near unbelievably tragic attempt at, at suicide. Um, I think you lost like $700,000 in the process of that, that all. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Just insane. But I didn't. let's start at the start because I really didn't know a lot about your upbringing mm-hmm. and what led you to the NFL because that story alone is inspiring and you know, surreal too. I mean, you, you were a high school defensive back and play quarterback. You get to yeah, Pierce Junior yeah. College and right. you're a backup and you had that epiphany like, I, I got to be selfish, quit having this big ego. And I think that switch alone says a lot about who you are as a person. And then you've got your parents and that's a whole other dynamic, but how did you even get to the NFL? Well, a securitous route, obviously it was not, didn't get drafted. And, uh, I even, you know, I had a good college career. I was ACC player of the year at NC state, my senior year. And, uh, uh, but yeah, like I said, didn't get drafted and, um, tried out, for the was it New Orleans Saints, and uh, mm-hmm. I knew the day I got there I was going to make it, but it was still, you know, made some good friends while I was there and uh, was back in school um, in time for, you know, the college football season to begin. And so I was back going to school and uh, thought I was going to help out with the football team and thought I was going to, you know, um, be a high school coach. And, uh, <laughs> right. and then right. uh, the strike happened in 1987. And so uh, I got a few calls from some teams. I ended up playing for Atlanta for, I think it was three games. And they ended up keeping me that year. I didn't play anymore that year. But uh, um, And then uh, the following year in training camp, I was the last cut because uh, the Rams had cut both of their backup quarterbacks. And so Atlanta picked them both up. And uh, I ended up waiting around for a few weeks. Nobody else called. And so I went up and played in Canada in the CFL. There was, uh, I think there were six games left on their schedule. And so I played, I, I came in at halftime or after halftime of the first game and then um, played the rest of the way. Didn't do anything special. And then um, ended up calling around to all the teams and, the Lions were the only team to give me a call back. And I guess in through writing this book, I, I talked to June Jones, who was a receiver coach there. And um, I guess he had, you know, going because prior to the Lions, he was the quarterback coach, offense coordinator for the then Houston Oilers. And they drafted uh, a receiver we had in the first round named Haywood Jeffries. And then even going back to the strike, he said, yeah, look at some of that stuff and thought you could play. And so that's a, uh, it was interesting because I, you know, they flew me out there and I'm, this is like in the middle of January. And so I'm sitting in the lobby and uh, it's at the Silverdome. And so back then there was, and probably even now, there was nobody in town to uh, work out. 
and the turf in the Silverdome was rolled up. I don't know if they ever had something else going on. And uh, I didn't know that at the time. And so the woman goes, comes out and says, hey, you know, you can sit in this office here. And this was Mouse Davis was the offensive coordinator then. And I go, I'm sitting there for a few minutes. And he comes walking in. He goes, who are you? <laughs> That's right. I so love that part. I go, all right, well, I'm just, you know, I got called in here to come work out. And so he goes, hold on a second. He walks back out and he goes, all right, how about we get in my car and you, June, and I will drive down to Ann Arbor. And um, so Michigan, University of Michigan has an indoor, obviously, field. And uh, I remember Alan Trammell was hitting, um, like, in the batting cage uh, in, in one of the end zones. And literally, my workout was me dropping back and June would be standing around wherever he was. And I'd be throwing them off. That was my workout. And uh, so, anyway, that's how I got started. Well, it, it's amazing, too, because I believe, you know, when you're trying to get back in the NFL after you had the, the little cameo during the strike, you mm. you busted out a media guide, right? And you're literally going team to team, just, just calling these teams. Yeah. Um, said, hey, Eric yeah. Kramer here would love to work out. <laughs> and the Lions were the one team that, that entertained team. it. Mm-hmm. And then you yeah. get out there and they, who are you? What are you doing here? Okay. I guess you made the trip from California. We'll do something. Well, not just that, but so um, when, so I, you know, they had a mini camp down in March um, down in Tampa Bay or in Tampa. And uh, we had it, we were on the field at what was then there, the stadium for the old stadium for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, so, the, the draft wasn't until the end of April. And that's when, so at the time, there was uh, Bob Galliano, Rodney Pete, and then me. And so the draft happens. And back then, there wasn't like ESPN wasn't covering the draft. And uh, so I had somehow heard that Andre Ware got picked with like the whatever pick, seventh pick, whatever he was. And I'm like, huh. All right, here's a guy who just won the Heisman Trophy, ran this offense in high school in college. And uh, um, so I'm like, I'm probably going to get a phone call here in about five minutes saying, hey, thanks, for, but no thanks. But they didn't. And, um, and so, yeah, they started, they had many camps and uh, he held out, right? Which kind of gave you an opening. Well, to get it, some so it real did. Rest. And so it, it kind of, I kind of got um, rejuvenated, I guess, when I showed up and, you know, Andre, you know, I don't know how to say this without saying, I don't want to be talking negative about him, but Andre wasn't the, the nicest guy in the world. And he kind of strutted around like he was it, which he really wasn't. And, um, so he had a hard time playing catch combined with the bad attitude. Uh, and then he held out, like you said. And so, but it was, you know, um, he didn't do himself any favors because it wasn't like he ingratiated himself to anybody. And, um, and he just had this air, like he thought he was God's gift to football, which he turned out not to be. And, uh, and so 
when you're not humble like that, and there's probably not much you're going to learn along the way other than hard lessons. And, uh, and so that's what happened. And so when he kind of played himself out and I kind of played myself in the combination of that is how that worked out. I think too, you, you had that epiphany, that bad attitude epiphany earlier, right? I, I mean, you're, you're at Pierce and I, I really found that interesting where you're on the other side of the team on the sideline, distant, sulking, thinking you should be out yeah. there as the starter. And, and maybe take us through that. And I really cannot encourage people enough to to buy the ultimate comeback and read it because, I mean, you'll finish it in a couple of days. It's it's that easy of a read. You, you cannot put it down. And it's so conversational. It really yeah. is like Eric Kramer is just sitting in your living room telling his story. I, I love you're, – you're an incredible writer, by the way. And it's 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 like you're talking with the reader and, yeah. and guiding them through this. And I found myself even laughing at times. You, you, you bring up the, uh, was it the, the deer tendon oh, right. thing you drank once? I mean, <laughs> you brought that up like later in the book. I'm laughing. Right. Right. Um, but yes, everybody out there, please read the book. But that, that moment in junior college where that, that struck me as a turning point in terms of football for you, where if you don't have that epiphany, nobody really hears about Eric Kramer beyond, Pierce junior college. Right. right. And that, that's pretty much where the whole thing flipped is. Uh, and, you know, I'll say this, like uh, we're all products of our, of our environment growing up. And my dad um, was a double, double sided coin. On one hand, he believed in me to the degree where everybody else must have thought at that time he was a knucklehead. Um, because there really wasn't much evidence to show that any, that I was going anywhere. On the other hand, he also lived through me. Um, but at the same time, he had a way of going through life where he was pretty good. Like his goal, his, the way he went about life, unfortunately for him, uh, and this goes back to his background growing up is he tried to make people subconsciously or sub or consciously or unconsciously live the life in which he tried to make people feel sorry for him. And so I kind of, in a way, followed that at Pierce College, where I thought I'd won this quarterback battle hand, like not even close. And the head coach didn't see it that way. And, and so it's not like we ever had a conversation about it, um, but anyway, like you were saying, we'd be playing games, and I'd be sulking down on one sideline, and all other, every other Pierce Brahma was down at the other end, and uh, and so what would happen is when I would get in the game, I would my mind wouldn't be in the right spot, and. So I, it didn't take me that long, maybe four or five games. And then I figured out, you know, as much as I'm doing for myself, getting ready and preparing, I might as well help out Dave, who was playing. And um, so that's what happened. And it just, it set me up for all things good in the future. Meaning I shifted away from, you know, what was good for me as opposed to what was good for the team. And it's amazing how that works. Your relationship with, with your dad, um, 
complicated doesn't really do it justice. And and and, and your mom is as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just think we're me and my dad are our best friends. I I call him every day. You know, he's everything to to me. And that's great. Yeah. How how would you describe your relationship with your dad? Because you're right. There's I came away thinking. I mean, he's in the room with the Pierce coaches, right? Convincing them. By the way, growing up, he called it a loser school. He envisioned you at USC, right. UCLA, right. but then you don't even play quarterback in high school. They got you a DB, but he, he does got to talk them into giving his son a chance, does. which does show a father's love. He's the only parent in the stands at practice, and you're like, Dad, yeah. come on. You got to quit doing that. Then he's hiding in the trees, camouflaging right. in. and right. So that does, I, he, I think, speak he, he to the love. At, but I would have to set his boundaries. Right. Yeah. And so and but he always thought those boundaries were dotted and those lines were. And uh, and so that's what I mean. Like he didn't have a way of going, oh, really? That's what it. how does this feel when I when I do that to you? Yeah. How does that feel like there was never that? And it was like, oh, really? Uh, it didn't even occur to him that that would be an issue. So then he found a way around. What was that issue? It made a new issue. Only it didn't. He lived in chaos. It didn't honor the chaos and disorder. Yeah, (laughs) right. And when you get around to it, I mean, he didn't have an upbringing anybody would want. No one. And you know, his mom apparently left him uh, and his dad when he was two years old, and um, he told me he never saw her again. Uh, but that's not what I heard. Um, I heard he did saw, see her again, but didn't really like what he saw. And then his dad um, basically shipped him off to uh, where his his family on his dad's side is from Oklahoma. And uh, so he grew up with his aunt's family um, and never really had one of his own. And then didn't reunite until with his dad until he started high school. And by then his dad was married again for the third or fourth time. And uh, so anyway, I, you know, uh, it, like I said, it, it's not an upbringing I would have wanted. And I don't think there's a long list of people who would want that. And so, um, you know, he didn't really know what being a dad was and uh, probably didn't know what being a husband was. And, and so, you know, in that in those ways, he's passed away now, as is my mom. And in those ways, um, you know, you I, you have to have uh, a soft spot in your heart for somebody like that. Which which says a lot about you because he, he was unbelievably overbearing. You know, even when you get to NC State and get to the NFL and ahead of the NFC Championship game, he's conducting mm-hmm. national interviews. You know, <laughs> playing himself as the victim that right. you just kind of left astray. And I mean, I can't imagine processing that all before one of the biggest games of your life. So good on you, Eric. I mean, it, 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 there is a lot, a lot there with that relationship. I encourage people to read, um, but you get, you get to the NFL, the fast forward again. Yeah. And it's crazy. I mean, the, 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 you're, you're not that big. You're not that athletic. You don't really have that strong of an arm, but you're mentally tough. You're physically tough and you're smart. How, how how would you explain that near instant success? That when, when you get your chance, you reel off some wins, you lead this team, the Detroit Lions, to their first playoff win in three decades, and it's been three decades since. <laughs> uh, it's unbelievable. Right. Uh, 
how, how, how does that happen? Right. How, how is Eric Kramer, the quarterback who, who pulls that off? Well, it's kind of like, I guess, when you were talking to describe it, it's kind of like the overnight band success, right? That nobody's ever heard of that's been playing in clubs for 30 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, they come out with their eight, you know, 180th song that makes it to the top. Well, there was a lot of songs before that that got them there. And I think that's basically what happens is you're kind of, you're, you're, everything at life and what you do with your life is always an evolution. And so you're always kind of getting a little bit better, hopefully sometimes a little worse, or in fact, learning from your mistakes on the path as well. And so eventually you get an opportunity and it's the right one at the right time. And I always equate my career to, you know, I'm standing in line and right then something's happened to the guy that's playing and the coach turns around and says, who's ready next? And everyone else happened to be tying their shoes at that time. And then there I was. And, and that's kind of how it worked out, honestly. Um, yeah. Good things happen from the very beginning. And, um, but it's only because I was ready. It wasn't because uh, I just kind of, oh, lucked into it. I mean, you created your own luck you know, through, through hard work and, and selflessness and a lot of qualities that, that your dad didn't have because mm. I, it, it, you don't just get that call from Dave Wanstead and, you know, right. Hey, here's, here's an offer for what, what was it again? It was like eight mil over three years, something like that. Oh, yeah. A lot at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. And uh, a, a lot for a guy who, you know, didn't even, like you mentioned before, um, I was on the path to play quarterback. So back when I was uh, in high school, they didn't have uh, freshmen. High school was 10th through 12th. And so when I was a freshman, I played youth football. That was my last year. And then um, as a 10th grader, I started on JV, but then three or four games into it, uh, broke a collarbone, I think, and was done for the year. Backed up as a junior traded changed schools as a you know like in between my what 11th and 12th grade year right in that second semester went to a different school who again this was all sought after by my dad I had nothing to do with this and right he's shopping up, you around right and then ended up going to uh i remember meeting uh my dad and i met the head coach at that time a guy named bob donovan um who I later found out after re he, he passed away after reading his obituary, uh, I found out that he was a receiver at San Jose state on the same team with Bill Walsh and um, <laughs> whatever. So I remember there's a, there's a, a you, you wouldn't know this being back on the East coast, but out here there's a restaurant chain called Bob's big boy. And so that's kind of back then in Burbank, that was like the spot. And uh, so we met at a Bob's Big Boy. And uh, anyway, next thing I know, I'm going to Burroughs. And there was a quarterback battle between me and a guy named Rich Strasser, which he was a good athletic quarterback in high school. He won it after, I think, we switched off for four, four games, I think. And then we didn't lose again. We went to the CF Championship, lost there. But uh, uh, anyway, that, that was my sort of start to this whole thing. But I realized after a while that – you know, what you have to do, in addition to everything physically, 
uh, meaning running, stretching, lifting weights, um, all that, watching video, watching film, is that what eventually tied it all together for me was a guy named Kevin Wildenhouse, who was a Back then, when I my first year with the Lions, I was on injury reserve. And back then, when you're in injury reserve, you're there all year. And so in practice, I had a hard time slowing things down mentally. So I literally went to the team internist, Dr. Birch, and uh, I said, hey, here's what's going on. He says, here, go see this guy. And so that's a, that's a friendship that I've had now since then with Kevin. And it, it was this ability to um sort of mindfulness i guess where you're kind of you're it's it's a uh, uh like uh you know like uh visualization Meditating, visualization yeah 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 so it's guided imagery basically and, and a way to breathe that kind of lets you allows you kind of sets the stage for you to slow everything down and so that's kind of how you want to go through life and also if you're playing a sport or whatever it is you're doing, if you can encounter the world like that, uh, that's a good way to go through things. I like the analogy that he used with you in terms of like being on an inner tube, kind of going down a, a river mm. and you've got to yeah. avoid jagged rocks because that you're, you're, you're moving in one direction, but you still have to kind of avoid obstacles and avoid trouble. And it's a lot like playing quarterback in the pocket. That seemed to be a turning yeah. point for you in the pros as well. Like to kind of, you know, you've got blitzers in your face, you've got to dissect coverages. Um, but you can't do one at a time when a play happens right. in three and a half, four seconds. Right. And so it's, it's kind of like I envision this water sort of flowing down gently, not this rushing river. And cause water, when you, when it encounters something like a rock or a boulder, it doesn't stop and shift gears. It just meanders and gravity takes it wherever it wants to go. And so um, that's kind of how you want to play. That's how I envision playing. And so everything really does slow down. And it's a, and, and I remember Kevin using some imagery like, um, you know, if you were a camera lens, Eric, and you would go from, let's say, you know, the play gets called. And as you're walking to the line, you begin to notice kind of not only the coverage and sort of this wide angle view, but you would also notice kind of is the cornerback inside or outside? And is the, you know, are there any tips here that look like a blitz or not? And, and so you kind of visualize what the play would be before you even call it in the huddle. And these are all things that, that, kind of need a slowed down pace, but sort of uh, in order pace to it as well. I'm just so fascinated by mental health and the NFL because um, it, it's still stigmatized today even. Mm. And, and guys have opened up to us about it. Khalif Raymond for the Lions, he was in a really dark place a few years back. And, you know, he got into the mindfulness with us. Um, and mm -hmm. that was such an important moment for him. He's muffing punts left and right. He's having these sleepless nights. And right. I know he'd do these like float sessions and yeah. a lot of meditation. And he kind of compared it to like, I, I'm looking at it right now on my laptop. I've got Firefox up and there's like 15 tabs. I don't need yeah. those 15 tabs open. He's like, really, it's, it's like you're kind of closing tabs in your life. If you can somehow mm. just eliminate clutter and yeah. focus on whatever's right in front of you that goes 
such such a long ways. And I, I don't see really that amazing was, how the way I always out. looked at it, Tyler, was like, you know, if you put in, you know, I wasn't naturally flexible. So I began stretching. I wasn't naturally fast. I began running. I wasn't naturally didn't have a lot of cardiovascular like ability. Started so I started running distance and uh, interval training, and then I wasn't very strong, so I got in the weight room. And so all those things didn't add up to uh, what I was looking for. What did was what was the glove that made all the fingers fit just right was Kevin Wildenhouse, and that you know putting it all together mentally. It's not just mentally, it's emotionally, you know, and Kevin began to, you know, over time learn about what we've been talking about here, about my upbringing and, and parents. And, and so kind of craft that with a few exercises as well. And so it's kind of like Khalif Raymond was telling you how you're kind of closing, you're kind of being able to accept, but then close that tab, yeah. you know, and look at this other tab with a little different set of understanding than you in perspective than you may have had before that way you can close that one too and if you want to open that back up when you're ready fine but it doesn't have to stay open and so it allows you to really just focus on what's in front of you and not have to give any energy to oh there's these other things open that eventually i'm gonna have to look over here while i'm doing this and that's really what frees up the person to not just mentally, but emotionally uh, focus in on what you're the task at hand. Because you got that contract from the Bears and things started terribly in 1994. Uh, you had some rough games, eventually benched, and you're yeah. thinking, this is it. And, and I think that was really your first bout with depression and I'll just pull up uh this is from yeah depression and a mother's love page 100 you wrote nothing felt adequate anymore my marriage never did but at this point I was also discounting my abilities as a father especially after Griffin's tenuous start to life I mean that's a whole story you get into as well um it was an unjust assessment but self-doubt rules every thought when you're mired in depression I questioned my career and my capability to continue playing my shoulder is healed but will there be a lasting impact Will I be able to effectively throw a ball again? My last start against the Lions suggested that I might not. Even if I can, will the Bears still want me? Will any team? What will I do with the rest of my life if I'm a washed-up player at age 30? Instead of seeing the world and my life with a floodlight, I could only see them with a narrow laser beam that was fixed on the pain, sadness, and suffering. I lost my ability to see the big picture, alternatives to my problems, and any hope for a better tomorrow. Um, what was it like when depression first really worked its way into your life because that it seemed well, like 94 was, was maybe that first domino for everything. Yeah, you get yeah. into. If there was a definite, if you look up in the dictionary definition for depression, that'd be a pretty good summation right there. And it, it, it basically, you now live in, or I at that time now lived in a hole where there was no light and you lose all perspective. Depression has a way of seeping in. And while you're not looking, it, basically zaps you of all perspective of the it zaps you of the aerial view of your life and it it all this self-doubt really creeps in and the ability literally to go down and even want to eat breakfast is now gone get out of bed gone 
although you know got to be there in an hour and and so you still have to go and being able to walk around and invest yourself in what you've always done in preparing and doing now your motivation for doing that's gone and uh so being able to keep moving forward during that time was very very difficult and as you mentioned i remember you know my mom and i our relationship was altogether different than my dad's and i and uh and so we weren't close either uh, for other reasons and uh, i remember talking to her during that time and i don't know what i said i don't know but she just eventually said look i'm coming out there i said oh okay great I don't remember what she did when she got out there, but my mom was pretty good at kind of getting, walking into an environment, say a house, and just kind of sitting back and assessing what can I do? And it wasn't like she came in and steamrolled everything. She just kind of, oh, maybe I can do this and do that. And remember at that time, Griffin was maybe, um, what, a year and a half maybe? And, um, and, yeah. and so, uh, <laughs> anyway, so she, you know, she found her way, uh, to helping with him and whatever else. And I'd say she was there, you know, probably a week, but for her to put her own life on hold for a week was a big deal. And so, um, so I, I that, that touched me and, uh, and, you know, it, it, I won't say that any one thing by itself helped turn it around. But I know eventually, you know, talking with a therapist and some antidepressants definitely helped. And, uh, you know, just kind of a combination of, uh, you know, kind of people, a, a few, it doesn't take many, you know, one, two people and uh, to kind of just continually to be there. And if you feel like talking, they're the person to talk to. And if you don't feel like talking, that's fine too. And um, so I think just eventually knowing that, and you don't know at the time, but depression is temporary. At least it was for me. And, and uh, you know, that that's, it, it's, uh, if you can get one or two people around you, whether it be a therapist, because they're, they're the ones that are professionally trained at listening um, and sort of insightfully listening to the point where they can have a suggestion or two that might give you a little bit different perspective than what you've got. In addition to that, maybe one or two at the most, three people that feel to you a safe place to land, that just by virtue of them listening, that's enough. And um, yeah, that, that's, it's not anything earth shattering, but it, it just, it, it can lift you out of the cage you feel yourself in. It will over time. And the, the hard thing with depression is there's no aspirin to take that goes, oh, now I feel better. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. And so if you can just know that if you're a patient and the people around you will continually show up for you in time, this will get better. And I, I, I would have thought that 1995 season would serve as that cure-all hmm. injection, right? I mean... You set yep. Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bears, right? We're not talking about a team that's been around a decade or two. We're talking about the Chicago Bears. I mean, you set single season records for passing yards, 3,838. 
uh, passing touchdowns, 29. He only threw 10 picks. I mean, it all kind of comes together in 95. Um, but it's not like that just made the depression go away. I think it, that, that next year into 96, there's no explanation for it. it it's just kind of how you're describing it. It just kind yeah. of seeps back into your into your mind. And um, I don't know where you want to take it from here, but, I mean, your, your NFL career continued for a few more seasons. Mm-hmm. But how, how did that depression just kind of linger and linger and linger to the point where all right, now these suicidal thoughts are a little more real than they were in 1994. Yeah, well, I, I never had depression. And I've, I've, if I had a guess here, I'd say probably seven, eight times. Um, I've, I've never had a bout that at some point or another didn't have an accompanying thought of suicide. The two kind of, for me anyway, kind of went hand in hand. It's not like every day. But it was like, this is really hard to get through a day uh, and have anything, have a thought that feels good in any way during a part of a day, have it, that day something happen that's good. And how long do I want to keep doing this? Um, and it's almost like you, I, I'd be doing everybody a favor if I wasn't here. Uh, eventually, because you know, if, if you're your own counsel and you're only your own counsel, um, <laughs> that's the worst person you can actually rely on. Uh, and so how this stuff happens and how this comes back into being, I don't know, but, and that's why I would say that the thing to do is a be proactive and not wait and, and have those start to observe people you do anyway so observe those that seem like they could be somebody that would be that active listener you know the active non-judgmental kind of um uh what's what i'm looking for um empathetic right someone that can empathize with what you're doing and saying put themselves in your shoes and listen from that perspective and maybe have a, a way of help, uh, help guide you in a way that says, hey, I'm willing to be here anytime this happens, day or night, doesn't matter. I'm the person you call. And, and so you want two or three of those um, ahead of time, like just as part of your daily life. And then that way, if, you know, at some point life kind of starts to go severely downward before it gets too far, Someone's going to notice that, that you don't quite seem the same. They might ask you. They might not wait for you to ask. They might not wait for you to come to them. They'll ask you first. And that's the way this, you know, building your own little home team, even as a kid, to me, is the way to go about this. I know we're fast forwarding a little bit. I don't want to skim past anything that you'd like to, to get into Again, everybody's going to buy the ultimate comeback and get every detail. Uh, but what led, what really led you to that hotel room? Um, for those who didn't read the series, yeah, to the point where you're checking into a hotel with the full intent to shoot yourself and end mm. your life. Yeah. Well, what led to that uh, were several instances or several things. Uh, I was done playing. I was uh, working at Fox. Uh, had 
kind of coached both of my sons through their youth football years. Um, during that same time, uh, I was uh, had a little passing camp going on with uh, former teammate Curtis Conway and uh, that same former junior college coach, Jim Fenwick. And, um, and then, uh, again, kind of transit during that time was working with Fox and doing games and everything. And then my mom, um, this is back, uh, on mother's day. So she and I, she was a golfer. She's actually better than me. And she, she, we went out to golf one day and, um, it was mother's day and she goes, as I'm walking in the car, she says, Hey, I'm going to, um, I'm going to get some tests back tomorrow. And I said, really? For what? And she says, oh, I just really haven't been feeling all that great. I said, oh, okay. Well, let me know how, let me know the results. And uh, she calls the next day and she says, okay, sit down. <laughs> I've got stage four uterine cancer. Uh, and so, what? Uh, and so then there was, you know, she was married at that time and, and her, and her husband, Doug, uh, found an oncologist and there did some wicked surgery where they had to remove parts of more than one organ. Um, and that nearly killed her, uh, but it didn't. And so, uh, you know, she recovered and um, I don't think she ever went back to work, but um, or maybe she did. I can't remember. In any event, um, the cancer returned and uh, then she began um, her, uh, you know, that, that around that time is when, you know, she would have uh, doctor visits that I would take her to. She would have her chemo, which I would stay overnight with her in the hospital for. And, um, and, you know, she was doing okay there for a while. Um, and then uh, in, um, in October, um, Griffin, um, my wife and I, Marshawn, were separated at that time. And uh, uh, Griffin chose to live with Marshawn. And this was after he had come out of this um, outpatient program at Visions, where he would live at home um, and then uh, you know, pretty much be gone all day at meetings. And eventually there was sort of this individualized school that he would go to that sort of giving him some belief in himself again. And then, um, uh, but I could see he kind of had his eyes on the finish line, so to speak. And uh, which he was done about, I don't know, February, March of that year in 2011. And then um, October 30th, I get a phone call from the sheriff's department, uh, but it was in the morning and wouldn't tell me what's going on. So I, I walk up these steps at the local sheriff's department. And uh, before I even could get in the door, the officer walked outside and said, you know, your son didn't make it through the night. And uh, I said, what? And I said, yeah, he passed away. Uh, and so, we literally drove to that house that it happened to occur in. Um, and, you know, it's just tough. And then around uh, about eight months later in July, 
my mom eventually passed away. Uh, and she had home hospice for about two or three days. And um, I remember the, uh, the doc, she was at, at um, West Hills Hospital. And uh, the doctor grabbed, uh, you know, a few of us that were in there and said, okay, it, it's, it's time. She's not going to make it. So she can either stay here or she can go home and have home hospice. So we all go back into her room and the doctor basically tells her, <laughs> you know, those little triangle bars that hang down over the head of the bed. As the doctor is telling her this, she starts doing these, you know, pull-ups. He goes, I feel good. <laughs> and so unfortunately, you know, she, she didn't make it. And then around that time that she passed away, my dad had some untreated, uh, acid reflux um, that eventually turned into esophageal cancer and which was about a three year steady decline. And there was for him no getting out of that. And so it's just a kind of a, you know, the feeling I had at that time was that all the significant people in my life were going that way. And there was really no one left coming this way. And, um, that, that that's not a that's not a ship that turns around easily, and um, and so you know I, I, that led me to of all places the Good Night Inn, uh, and I, Dylan wasn't living with me either, um, and he was living with Marshawn, and you know unfortunately uh, this gave me too much time on my own hands to contemplate and then fully go execute an exit. So I didn't want Dylan walking into my house um, with that scene. And so I uh, had purchased a gun. Um, and uh, I, of all things, go to a shooting range, like shooting down the range. And, uh, you know, what I was going to do had nothing to do with that. And so, uh, but the fact that I'm still here, uh, because I did, I, on, I forget what day it was, August something, it was, turned out it was the day before Dylan, my youngest son's first day of school. He was going to be a junior in high school. And uh, so, yeah, it's just, you know, again, you lose all perspective and you don't think, what's this going to do to everybody else? Because, um, you know, for the person who does commit suicide, it's over. Everybody else, it's just beginning. And uh, so thankfully, through some unbelievable doctors and the support of those around me, here I am. And uh, it's, I couldn't be more grateful. Um, I don't feel any regret because you can only do, you only make the decisions you have based on the information and how you're feeling and the thoughts you have at the time. But I'm so grateful that what I did didn't, I wasn't successful at. And so now I get a chance to be here for all of them and do some good with, uh, with what would be the ultimate second chance. I was going to say, there's a reason that you survived that attempt. I mean, you are going to help thousands upon tens of thousands of, of people 
who may be having similar thoughts. And I, I'm sure people are listening and thinking, how does one go to shoot themselves in a hotel room and survive? I'd imagine that day, that night is a little difficult to recall, Eric, but the logistically, how in the hell did you survive? I don't know. Like did I the said, doctors I, I, tell you? I mean, like, because I know that the reconstructive surgery was was pretty intense, right? Yeah, yeah. There there was a time when, like, if if I turn to the side here, like, there was part of my forehead. See, I think it's on this side. Part of my forehead missing. So literally, my 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 head went back that way. And and this is this is not mine. This is like a some I don't know. Uh, high tech plastic. Um, and so I remember uh, a friend of mine, Anna, uh, who she's, you know, someone that we went to high school together and, and I'm, I'm her oldest daughter's godfather. <laughs> and uh, so Anna, who's been there every step of the way, she takes me to uh, a revisit with the doctor who had done the surgery that night. And uh, so what had happened was they uh, opened my head up and eventually my brain began to swell. So they could, they had to close me back up and couldn't do the, couldn't do what they needed to do that night. And it took them, I don't know, two, three days later. Uh, and, so I go back for this visit and we're sitting in the doctor's in, you know, a normal office, way, uh, patient room. And he's asking me some questions and he's standing off to the side and I'm kind of talking this way. And I look up and it's like his jaws on the ground. I said, did I say something wrong? You know, and he goes, oh, no, no, sorry. He goes, he goes, you have to understand that people that were in the situation you were in aren't usually back here talking to me about it later. And so uh, uh, that just goes to show you, it showed me and uh, that, you know, um, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. And to go back to that uh, thing, that scenario where, you know, I, I had gone to Detroit as part of a way to publicize this book. And one of the interviews I did was a woman named Jen Hammond who had been waiting for this book to come out. She was WGN for a couple of years. And so she comes and it, there's a hotel room I've got and we're sitting apart across from each other. And she says, you know, normally you would, you would do, you would start an interview kind of chronologically, but I'm just going to start at the end. She goes, you, you weren't supposed to be here. Were you? I go, well, I guess you're right, but I am. She goes, why do you think that is? I go, well, because I, I think I'm here to help people. Now, four or five hours later, I'm in that same hotel room uh, waiting to do another interview of some kind. And the phone rings, my cell phone. It's a former Lions teammate. And he's like, Brass? This is Larry Tharp. <laughs> and he had never called me a day in his life. And he goes... I just have to tell you something. He goes, I've been looking, I've been trying to get a hold of you like for days now. He goes, I haven't, I haven't wrote something on your, your Facebook. And I go, yeah, I'm sorry. Lee, I don't check it. <laughs> and, and so uh, he gives me the scenario where 
uh, he wanted a divorce from his wife. And she starts going crazy. She starts scratching herself up. She calls 911. He gets arrested for domestic violence, something he didn't do. And he goes, I'm talking to you right now with an ankle bracelet on. I can't leave the state. And, and he goes, I talked to other people about it. And they're like, you know, Larry, it's, it's all going to be fine. He's like, maybe for you, maybe this Tuesday for you is going to be fine. For me, I got an ankle bracelet on. I can't leave the state. And, uh, and so, you know, here it is. She goes, why, why are you still here? Well, that's why. And, and um, part of the reason why. And, and uh, so it's just, it makes me feel good because I originally wanted to do this for Griffin and Dylan and, and, uh, and so the trickle effect is that, you know, I've been getting a lot of feedback from people who've read it, who are friends of mine. One night I'm, I'm watching some Netflix show and I, a text comes in. It's from a very good friend I went to college with. And he says, I've never read one book cover to cover except this one. And he goes, I always looked up to you and, and respected you based on who I thought I knew you were. Having no idea this all happened. And so um, anyway, it's been good because I think, as you mentioned, uh, this little story here has positively affected some, some people in a very good way. And it's only possible because you are so raw and open. I mean, you don't hold anything back. I mean, re really, I mean, it is from your child childhood to today, you just bury your soul. And it's really kind of a journey of, of the mind, really. I mean, football is a part of it here and there. But really, you, you really take everyone through mentally where you're at your entire life. Um, and th so this book is going to help. You know, there's non-football fans reading. I, I think it, it transcends sports. Everybody should get this book. Everybody should read it. Because then even after you survive that, for those who don't remember, I mean, you the surgery is amazing. And looking at you now is just how I looked at you a few years ago. It, yeah. you, you'd never know anything happened. Uh, even, even speaking to you shortly after the suicide attempt, you'd never really know. Um, but that wasn't the case mentally, was it? I mean, you, you weren't no. Eric Kramer. And no. then someone tried to take uh, advantage of that. You know, with, with a people can see if you've got a broken arm, you got a cast on. Um, you got something going on with your brain, no one can see it. And so you would have to kind of have known me uh, to know that after a few minutes, this he doesn't quite sound right. We were just talking about this last night. Uh, so Anna and I went over my aunt and uncle's house and uh, and we're talking about this and um, uh, it, it's, you know, if you were around me and you had some bad intentions, meaning if you wanted to take advantage of me, I was very easy to take advantage of um, and was. And then, but, you know, you, you, those people around me like Anna and other family members and friends knew that you know, this is the time that someone like me needs to be looked after. And in many ways, the justice system prevented that from happening. 
and and uh, so and, and they were part of the ones that took advantage, and uh, so it it it's. It's not limited to the people who do it illegally. It includes many people who steal illegally, but they themselves don't look at it that way. We want everybody to read it, but if you could sum up that that stage of your life, Eric, um, to the extent that you can, how, how difficult was it? And in many ways, I feel like everything that you had to deal with after the good night in was, 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 was just as bad because your, your yeah. life is slipping away from you. And, um, there's, there's not anything you can really do about it. No. And it's kind of like the, I guess the way I equate it now is during the, those years, let's say from, you know, whenever it was, I woke up to, um, let's say 2019 ish. So that, there's a good stretch of four years in there that I don't really remember a whole bunch. And what I do remember, I might not remember accurately. And I, I equate it to like, let's say a seven or eight year old. You know, if yeah. if you were to take me by the hand and we're going to walk out the front door and as soon as we get the sidewalk, while we're in the house, you say, when we get there, we're going to turn left. But by the time we got there, I would have already forgotten that. You say, we're going to go right. Oh, okay, we'll go right. And so... From that seven, eight-year-old, if 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 you said uh, if you had taken all the toys I had in the world at that age, would I have even cared? No. Now, when I'm twelve or thirteen, and I look back and I find out what you did, now am I going to care? Yeah, because now I've got my faculties about me again, and so that's kind of how it worked is that, um, you know, there was only so much the people around me were able to protect me from because the legal system had their hand in the cookie jar also. And, uh, and it, it's just, uh, and that the idea is with, with all of this, this book is just the first of many things coming, but ultimately what I want to do and what Anna and I together want to do is enact or change laws that are already on the books that don't aren't don't have enough teeth to them or uh, ones that don't exist need to. And so we started making some headway with that here in California several years ago. Um, but uh, the guy who is actually from this area, Van Eyes, he was the California State Senate Majority Leader, uh, Robert Hertzberg. And, and uh, so he left that position. But he also put us in contact with other people that I think are on that same train. And so uh, you can't let these people that hide behind their legal profession or professional fiduciary bureau or California State Bar, you can't let them continue to, in their minds, do their job while stealing legally from people. Can't do that. So the best way to do it is to, you know, with the use of media and other avenues, is to shine the light on the cockroaches and uh because there's plenty of them out there i tell you what you gave me an education uh when we spoke i think that was maybe part two of the fight for your life that we ran and i had no idea how conservative i need i need a little help conservatorship yeah i mean the, the, 
it's unbelievable how bureaucracy works. And all to, these people uh, within steal, that system, all your life. these people, right? All these people, whether they be lawyers, professional fiduciaries, um, people within companies, um, trust departments, officials, whatever, they all they all use your incapacitation to protect themselves. And think about that. If I watched this documentary, docuseries, and I can't remember the name of it right now, The Guardians. And mm -hmm. it was about the conservatorship system, what they call guardianship in the Vegas area, Cook County and uh, Nevada. And it in there, they're talking about this is the fastest growing industry in America. Because you've got the only way to be conserved is to be have some medical brain injury or incapacitation. That's the you can't get in there. Let's say you chop an arm off. That's not going to get you into conservatorship. What is is your mental deficiencies, which think about that. You've got somebody who's got some money in the bank with some mental deficiencies and a system in place with, under the guise of we're going to protect you, but really we're going to we're going to drain everything you have while protecting you. It's diabolical and it's legal. Yeah. Cause I think you estimated Courtney, you know, yep. quote unquote thief who coerced you into this marriage, probably stole about 300,000, but then it was a legal system that stole yeah. 400,000. That's right. That's right. But they don't see it that way, but uh i do and and so yeah yeah and, and so it's it's really just a matter of, of in addition to this book uh shining a light on what hasn't so far there's been some cases don't get me wrong there's across america um uh, there have been quite quite a several and um over the years and this is like i said this is a big issue in fact there was a, a movie about this uh i think it's called i care a lot it's um and the person, the woman um, that that was, I forget her name now, but uh, you would recognize her name. Um, anyway, so it's slowly but surely coming into in, into the consciousness of America, but not yet enough. And thank God you eventually did wake up, and thank God for Anna. I mean, she yeah. really was the hero in this story to kind of help, help you connect dots and, and realize what happened over those four years. So, I mean, we get into the painstaking detail. It's it's in our series. And of course, there's a heck of a lot more in the book, which I cannot recommend enough. Um, it's just great to see you in such a good spot, Eric. I mean, really, even since the, the first time we, we met on a Zoom, that was 2020. So it was kind of fresh then. You're right, right in the throes of everything still. Um, it, it seems like, everything has only gotten better and better and you're in a great place today. Would you say in, in terms of waking up in the morning and, and just being excited to attack the day? Yeah, I do. I feel great. And like you said, sometimes in, in at least in my case, all that was needed was time. And so here we are, what was it? It was August in 2015 where I did shoot myself. And now we're in 2023, a good eight years later. And uh, I feel like back to normal. And it, it took probably, 
you know, probably wasn't long before you and I spoke, I'd say maybe a year before things started to really get back connected for me mentally. That's a long time, right? That's four or five years. And, but scientifically, you talk to neuropsychologists, uh, there was one connected with me, Dr. Tomaszewski. He says, yeah, for the initial recovery period, we're talking two to three years. That's the initial part. But for, for you to kind of get back to normal, if there is one, now we're talking, you know, four or five years, which is right about that time. And now you're changing lives, which is amazing. And can't thank you enough, Eric. This was well, awesome. I can't thank you enough, really, Tyler, because this is you were the guy that kicked it all off in terms of doing the most uh, kind of thorough three part series on this, even to this day. And um, and like like you just mentioned, things are getting better and, and the wheels are starting to turn. And there's a lot of good that's going to come out of this. And so I, I really thank you for helping to get that started. Oh, no, the gra the gratitude's all here. I think anybody who hears your story in any capacity, they, they they can't help but come away but want but want to be a better person and to live life for today. And I think that that's what people are going to get out of this book. I mean, living with a purpose. I'm glad to have that in the, in the subhead. It's so true. Like, you really found your purpose in life, and it's such a great message for everybody out there. So do yourself a favor. Go on Amazon, wherever you get your books, and – add the ultimate comeback to your library let's do it again soon eric it's so so great to see you man awesome thank you tyler appreciate everything good luck with obviously what you're doing and hey we'll hope to see i'll be on radio bro out there at super bowl in vegas so hopefully you'll get out there too sounds great my man you got it okay take care